one of the things that I think is really important, given the point we're at in net zero, is to look at the system as a whole and partly look at the market frameworks, but also look at the institutions that oversee those. And it's important that we um, make sure we've got an institutional framework that works for net zero. And that means in some places, we need to create new functions that just don't exist at the moment. And, um, you know, cross-vector coordination would be one good example. Uh, but actually, you know, the degree of the long-term planning around the developments of uh, networks um, and markets uh, is, an, is another one where some of those functions exist but need to grow. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Feddersen, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And my guest on the show today is one of the UK's most senior electricity sector civil servants and one of the major brains on energy policy in the UK. He's a long-time energy policy specialist, having held roles in Green Deal Finance, the Cabinet Office, and since 2014, uh, in Bayes, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which was formerly called the Department of Energy and Climate Change. He's a modern historian with a stellar academic track record uh, from Magdalen College, Oxford, London Business School, MBA. Uh, my guest on the show today is Dan Monzani, Director of Energy Security, Networks and Markets at Bayes. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, John. Very kind. Before we get into energy policy in, in Britain, I'd like to pick up a few things about your background, Dan. And one thing that strikes me is uh, you didn't just stop at one degree in modern history, which I think is where most, most people stop. They say, right, I've done the, done, the, done, done the sort of, you know, speculative, interesting thing, and now time <laughs> to kind of develop some practical skills. Uh, you doubled down and went and did a master's as well. Why, why did you double down on modern history and, and, and what did you focus on? It sounds like you say, what took you so long to knuckle down, John? But uh, <laughs> um, it's a polite love way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair challenge. <laughs> um, look, you I love don't want to know history. how long really I spent at university, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I loved modern history and I still love it. And I read uh, history still. I think it gives you a really useful perspective on where you are uh, at any point in time. Um, I, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, at, at Magdalen a lot. Uh, I also enjoyed a lot else about Magdalen. And uh, when I left, I think I just wanted to uh, have a proper crack and lean into uh, doing some in-depth history. So, um, uh, so that's what I did. And I got a chance to focus on my uh, real areas of interest, which had increasingly become around US history, uh, 19th and 20th century in particular. And increasingly, uh, uh, I started looking a lot at the race relations and they'd sort of pretty pretty diabolical experience of um, black Americans in that period. Interesting. Do, do you think when you look back and, and I, this is a bit of a naive, probably a naive non-historian question, but do you look back at say 20th century um, US history, race relations and say there was a critical turning point where if something hadn't happened, 
you know, the world could have gone in a very different direction. You know, we wouldn't have, I don't know, either we would have more, we would have had Black Lives Matter protests and all that a decade or two ago or it wouldn't have existed or, yeah, are there any of those critical critical points where you think the world, you know, hinged on on one particular thing? Yeah, well, it, uh, <laughs> it sounds an awful lot like the kind of question they throw at you when you're um, you're preparing for those kind of interviews to get into places like Oxford. Um, so, uh well, yes, I do. Um, I, I was, funnily enough, I was reading only this morning um, about uh, how close the uh, Dixocrats, that's the segregationist uh, Democrats in 1948, uh, came to winning a couple of states, Ohio and California, in that election, which instead of Truman winning the election would have meant that no one had won it and it went to the House of Congress, the House of the Congress to decide the election. And it's quite plausible in that scenario that either they would have been able to be a um, a compromise candidate between the two main parties, or that they would have extracted concessions um, from the Democrats, which would have had a completely different bearing on uh, civil rights over the next 20 or 30 years. And, you know, uh, I suppose philosophically, you can't say whether it was always inevitable that those few tens of thousands of votes went in one direction, but I, I think it'd be a bit naive to rule out contingency and uh, as playing a pretty important role in history. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I suppose you know re, lots of recent examples. Presumably, your life at least would have been substantially different if the if the Brexit vote or or or, or Scottish Scottish referendum had gone in different directions in recent times. So it's not a not 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 a phenomenon that has has declined over time. Probably, um, good. Uh, how just another question? You you know you you've been in in Bayes and in Deck for a pretty decent period of time now, but just reflecting over the last you know, almost two decades of your career since you entered the civil service. How do you think the civil service in the UK has changed in that period of time, if at all? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, in some ways, there's an awful lot of continuity and, and particularly around core values. I mean, I think those uh, those values you can really trace back to the 19th century about uh, impartiality, uh, um, doing the absolute best for the ministers of the day, but being ready to uh, turn on a sixpence after after general election and do your best for the, the next set of ministers. Um, real commitment to public uh, to public service. I think those are still there and have all have been there for a very long time. Um, I think it's how the form has changed. So digitalization has made a difference to every workplace. It's it's no different in the civil service. I can remember when I started having to you know print off every. Uh, every paper we wrote for ministers and put it in a pink folder that would eventually get picked up and taken to the public records office. That doesn't happen quite the same way nowadays. Uh, it was just starting at a point where there was a lot, a lot of the formality, the sort of uh, hierarchy was sort of breaking down a bit. So we, I think, just managed to persuade people at relatively low grades that they should surrender their offices when I joined the civil service. Um, <laughs> now, uh, no one other than the permanent secretary has, has an office. Yeah, yeah. London um, real estate prices may have driven well, Maybe it was that, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, and I think some of this has really opened up. So uh, we advertise all of our, pretty much all of our senior roles externally as well as within the civil service now. Mm-hmm. I think when I joined, it was still pretty rare to join other than through the fast stream, unless you were in a, a specialist profession like HR or, or um, finance perhaps. Um, so I think we're, we're much more open to people going in and out of the service, which I think enriches it massively. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, great. And the, the fi- final bit I want to ask about is, I suppose, a segue to the white paper. You've just released it. It was a long time coming. I get the impression a lot of the work had already been done a long, long time ago. 
you know, well, long time, several months in, in many cases. What's the feeling like in the department? Is it relief? Is it, is it like you've won the World Cup and, you, you know, it's a big milestone and everyone's celebrating? What's the, what's the feeling like with the people who have just got the white paper out? Yeah, and, and it was a, you know, a lot of people contributed to that, as you might imagine, mm. um, but particularly the guys who were holding the pen on it, I think, uh, probably feel uh, all those feelings to a sort of um, order of magnitude. Um, wow, I don't know. I mean, there must be a there must be some sort of nice German portmanteau, like Dunkelflaut, uh, that, uh, that sort of combines <laughs> all those things of pride, relief, exhaustion, yeah. excitement for the next stage, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Okay, I'll have to, yeah, I'm not sure I'll have to ask my colleagues in Berlin. Um, it, it sounds like it probably exists. Um, good. Well, great to hear. And congratulations, by the way. I didn't say that, but, um, you know, major major policy document, obviously an enormous number of stakeholders. These things aren't easy. So um, I, I hope you, you manage to kick back over the Christmas break and, and, and reflect on it. Certainly lots more to do next year. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't get any, it doesn't get any easier. We might touch on that in a second. But so I want to start very broadly on your role before sort of drilling into particular policy areas. And a question on my mind here is how do you how do you think about policy uncertainty? So you've just announced a bunch of bunch of policies. Some of them change direction, many of them are a con- continuation and, and deepening of what you were doing. Um you know, how you know, is it your role to manage policy uncertainty as as government in a rapidly changing sector like energy and you know how much certainty should there be yeah that's a that's a really good question and and obviously one that um we're always we're always thinking about um and and i think yes i think it is but we can only do it to an extent because as you say the underlying um nature of net zero is that both the technologies and the um the way in which we need to address policy is changing rapidly um, so I think we do it in a couple of ways. Certainly in the design of policy instruments, we can look at the things that um, drive unnecessary cost, for example. So the use of contract law in the CFD is a good example of that, giving people confidence that they um, can uh, lock in their agreements and it's not, um, it's, it, you know, it's got a longevity to it that isn't mm. uh, based on future policy changes uh, in, in the main. I think there's a little bit of self-restraint that we I'm certainly conscious of in things like the capacity markets, where we've tried to be reasonably predictable about changes when we make them, in particular when we announce them and making sure that we um, you know they don't come completely out of a blue sky and they are far enough ahead of auctions that people can rationally incorporate them into the bids. Um, so that you know there may be change, but we can be sensitive and sensible about uh, how we how we um, when we announce them. What else on policy? I think I think it's important we work closely with Ofgem and the electricity system operator to make sure there's a much coherence across all parts of the regulatory framework. So when you hear Finson Sly the, 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 um, at the ESO talking about having markets everywhere and the ability to operate the grid at, uh, at zero carbon, I, you know I hope you'll see that's very similar language to the kind of way we describe the market framework in in the white paper. And I think that communication is a big part of it, right? So we can't tie the hands of all future governments and um, we can't promise there won't be change, but I think we can do things like we're doing, like I'm doing here today, to talk about how ministers are thinking about policy and and what is informing how uh, those policies might evolve. And we can do that and open a process with industries we can in a two-way dialogue where we take those ideas on and we explain our thinking back as well. Mm. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's certainly characterised your time at, at, at Bayes and DEC, that sort of willingness to engage and have a conversation with the industry. And, and in, a, in a sense, it's sort of a trust, right, that, um, that you know, industry get that things are fast moving and, you, you know, you can't divulge everything that you're thinking at any particular point in time. Uh, but, it, but it seems to have worked well from my perspective at least. Um, can on the on the one other thing on the sort of macro level of your role is around I think one thing that's characterized probably the last two or three years is the rising level of ambition and expectation from the public around the speed of decarbonization. And of course, you see that most clearly in terms of the you know, the ambition sort of 80, it was an 80% reduction. Uh, then it became uh, under Theresa May, a sort of 100% reduction in emissions on 1990 levels uh, by 2050. Now, so that's changing. And at the same time, so, so there's quite a lot of pressure ramping up on you. And I suppose the most recent example of that is uh, the Committee on Climate Change's sixth carbon budget. And one thing that really interested me about this document is, yes, okay, it enshrines the net zero by 2050 that government's already committed to, uh, more aggression in terms of the power sector by 2035 or some clarity there. But it also tells the story of this transition coming at low cost or relatively low cost as far as I can see it. Um, is there a risk? Now, I don't think the transition, I, I mean, I think the transition to a low carbon world is globally has a massive payoff. And I think that's what the science says. But from a British perspective, uh, this transition will be difficult and, and there'll be major changes as far as I can see. Do, do, you, do you think there's a risk in the public debate that there's a perception that this transition is going to be very easy and, and that actually there'll be an impatience that comes when things aren't happening. And indeed, I already see the impatience to some extent with the white paper. You know, where's the detail? Why aren't we rolling out CCUS, these types of things? Do you see a risk there around public expectations? Um, so I think there's a there was a risk the other way not so long ago, right? So um, I think net zero has been such a powerful policy decision in making it clear that everybody is going to have to decarbonize, um, you know, very small amounts of genuinely very difficult things that might be offset in order, hence the net zero rather than an absolute zero. But overall, I've heard it described that there was a risk in the 80% target that 80% of the economy thought it could hide in the 20%. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Uh, and nobody feels that now. Everybody knows they have to find a pathway. And of course, it's more difficult for some than others and, you know, and so on. But that's been really powerful and corrected uh, an understanding of just how significant a change uh, decarbonisation is. So I think there was a risk before that we people were understating that. I think there's also been a risk historically that people have overstated how expensive it would be. I mean, you're certainly right to say from a scientific point of view that catastrophic climate change is not a very good economic strategy, quite no. apart from anything else. But also people have overstated or, or, or be more sceptical than perhaps has been borne out by the evidence of the ability for some of these technologies to come down in cost. Mm. Um, most famously, of course, offshore wind, but also uh, some of the ways in which flexibility can make better use of that wind and mm. other technologies in order to bring down costs. So I think, I think the CCC report does a good job in correcting some of those tendencies, if you like. Um, and... You know, but it is a it is a macro document, and, I, and it is obviously right that in, there is a significant amount of investment that needs to be made, and that someone will have to bear those costs as well as people will bear the benefits that they point to in 
commodity cost savings, particularly on petrol and diesel for, for cars. And one of the challenges will be that is not necessarily going to be evenly distributed so that people who are bearing some investment mm. costs don't automatically get those savings. And I think it's that unevenness that we've got to work our way through, um, both in terms of unevenness over time and between different groups. Um, there's quite an interesting graph in our, in our white paper that shows that, roughly speaking, the, white, the, um, the, energy, the household energy bill was about the same in 2019 as it was in 2010. Yeah. But, you know, in between, as you'll remember in the political debate, there was a, there was a peak, uh, actually driven yeah. by commodity costs much more than by policy. And of course, the distribution of who got the costs and benefits over that period has been quite different. You, you got a very good benefit if you invested in your energy efficiency, mm. but the underlying electricity price rose. So that's the cha- one of the challenges we've got, both to drive down costs overall and make the system more efficient, obviously, and there's plenty in the white paper about that. But we've also been transparent about that debate that we need to have about how those costs are applied and what's the most efficient and sensible way to do that. The Treasury mm. doing a review on how uh, net zero costs are allocated, and we've also committed that we'll do a call for evidence next year on um, fairness and affordability and how those costs are allocated. Yeah, okay, okay. Do you, and do you think, I mean, does the public get that? I, I mean, what I see, and sort of drill down on that question, I, I mean, is, so I see a lot of, you know, you can you, know, you can develop solar in Spain at the moment for 15 euros a megawatt hour, right? Um, it's phenomenally cheap. And in general, solar and wind are, are you know, the cheapest megawatt hours you can procure at the moment. But that seems to be sort of, to some extent, where the debate stops. Um, mm. do, do you how, how big a role do you think Bayes has around public education on some of these trade-offs and engaging with some of those distributional questions? Yeah, no, I think we do have a role. And, and of course, it's it's not just the general public, but I mean, a lot of energy consumers are firms and we need to mm. engage equally with industrial energy users and, and commercial energy users uh, to bring them into the debate about what the best way to uh, to do this is. Um, I think, I mean, I think, you know, people are much more engaged with the environment than they perhaps were five or 10 years ago. It seems to uh, register quite high on the sort of trackers of what the most salient issues are for people. Yeah. So I think there's a, a degree of buy-in for what we're trying to do, but I, I don't, you know, I think it'd be nice to think that people will be prepared to, uh, sorry, I think people are going to have to feel that it, they are paying their fair share and mm. getting their fair share of the benefits. Yeah. Um, and of course, in some areas, that's much easier to demonstrate, right? I mean, looking at an, uh, choosing an electric vehicle these days is a, you know, that's a, they're a positive consumer experience. Um, and that's come on in a few years from the first prototype EVs, which look like a bit of a trade-off on quality, whereas now they're, they're, they're performance vehicles. Yeah, excellent. And I will come back to electric vehicles. I, I like your, I like the the description that at eighty percent there, you know, eighty percent of the people thought they could hide in the twenty percent. Is just briefly on net zero. Is there a risk there too with net zero? Do you think there's sort of negative emissions technologies mean that we can, you know, planes can keep emitting, and uh, maybe you know peak periods in the power sector should use natural gas, those types of things. Is, is there a risk there as well, or is is the move from eighty to z- net zero? covers most of your basis there well i think it definitely shrinks the space for yeah. that and i think when you're debating i mean some of those technologies exist but they're not they're not yet at a scale or cost effectiveness that you could say well I, that's obviously the answer for this i can carry on doing what i'm doing yeah. let's hope they do because that would be great right um, and some of the ccc analysis relies on that continuing innovation and progress and um likewise we've invested in a number of innovation areas um but you can't you know, you've got to you've got to plan on decarbonizing with what you've got now, and then invest in innovation to have better technologies in the future as well. Yeah, 
Yeah. Okay. We we might come back to negative emissions um, t- towards the end. Another sort of macro point on the white paper. You you kind of you 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 know to some extent. I think there's a you know it's defined to what's not in it as much as it's defined by what's in it. And you know as as you've already mentioned, there's a whole bunch of calls for evidence and processes going into 2021 that are referenced in that document. How do you decide what's in and what's out when you write a paper like 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 the white paper? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't the the editor for the document, and um, had 170 pages uh, already, <laughs> plus companion documents. I hope you read all of those. Um, it's uh, it's already quite substantial. Yeah, um, and some of it's of course driven by uh, where we've already done a lot of industry engagement, and where um, you know we're we're ready to to move on, and where areas where we want to do more before we reach final proposals. So perhaps an area of, of my own where we are working closely with a range of stakeholders and we're not yet ready to say what the final answer is would be around offshore transmission for example we're very clear that you know there's a need to look again at how you get greater coordination but we don't yet have the final model on that and the other thing is that one of the things i've been really pleased to see people playing back to us is i think the white paper describes energy policy as a whole system and looks i mean the whole chapter on systems but actually taken together it looks at it in the round and gives us a strategic framework which we can deepen and i think you might lose sight of that if it became a 1700 page document that went into detail in all of those areas yeah 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 then there's a i mean it's interesting right no matter how many times there's a major government policy document every time you get industry voices assuming this is going to be the panacea for everything over over the period to 2050 and it you know consistently policy is an evolutionary process yes you occasionally get big documents but it, it seems like i don't know if it's a game or i don't know if if, if people haven't cottoned on but there's just a you know, it, it, yeah. it, it, you know, there's this expectation which seems to never get met in terms of policy documents around d- detail. Well, it's an um, enormous challenge, right? And, and and no one document is ever going to answer it. But actually, I think the, the stakeholder response has been pretty reasonable on that point. And in realising that both the 10-point plan and the white paper have been pretty substantial in themselves, as well as pointing the way to, to more in the future. So just to get into some of the detail in the white paper... And could I start with market design? My, and I confess, I haven't read all of the appendices. Um, Dan, you'll be disappointed um, to hear oh, uh, Christmas. I want to want to keep something up, up my sleeve for Christmas. Um, it, my broad take is: it sounds like we're happy with where we are on things like capacity mechanism, contracts for difference, all the all the kind of EMR machinery. Um, do you think that's a fair characterization? And 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 I suppose. You know, in as much as there are open questions here, what do you think the big ones are around future market design? Yeah, so I mean, particularly given what we've just discussed, I'd be naive to say that we've absolutely, definitely got the final market design for the next thirty years. I think mm. that, I think that's um, that's not the case. Um, but it, the instruments we've got have done a really good job and uh, brought on investments in wind, for example, at incredible value for money because of the way in which it's it's kept the cost of capital down low and similarly in the capacity markets uh, as well brought on investment but also enabled us to keep security of supply at low costs and those instruments have always evolved and, and actually there's a lot in the white paper about how we will uh, and the companion documents around how we'll um, seek to evolve those so the market framework as a whole including the capacity market but also a, a number of other markets for the system services that we need you know from various operability things and inertia and what have you 
um, shows that we're deepening that frame and, why, and making sure that we're giving access to, to all technologies into those markets, creating new markets where that's necessary, and also making sure that you can connect uh, those markets together um, through the digital platforms that are necessary and through the, the right design of market rules at both a, a, a different levels in the, in, in the market. So there's a continuing evolution of, of those designs. And similarly, uh, we've uh, launched a call for evidence on some of those things on the contracts for difference as well. Um, we will, of course, keep under review where that takes us to. Does that take us to, to a position that can endure for, for 20 years or do we need to make other changes? Um, so there's there's a, there's a wide debate around this. And, um, uh, you know, I think... I think we should see where those will take us and we'll keep uh, analysing what that does in in the marketplace. Um, I know various stakeholders have pointed to things. I mean, certainly um, developing those flexibility markets is really important. Uh, Locational and temporal price signals, both really important. And we've we've done stuff on this, but we've got uh, more to do on those uh, to make sure that we get the flexibility into the system that we need to complement what in any generation mix is going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of wind. And so those are certainly things we're working hard on at the moment. Hmm. Is there a, on the, on the C, you mentioned the CFD point and the evolution of those. And I think to some extent, there's a sense in that renewables is not, you know, renewables is not, it's not done, but it, but it's low cost. It's competitive. Um, it's going to, it's going to come. The private sector's geared up a, around it. It seems to me like the story of renewable support has been about slowly transferring risk from government to you know business and developers you know the fits took all of the risk away in all sorts of ways and then we started to you know make cfds you pay for your imbalance um you know we sharpen imbalance pricing uh uh, for example um we would uh you know now you've got negative hours rules and and things like that in france you get you get rewarded if the the wind is producing it more valuable times than less valuable times. Do you see a, a progression here in the renewable space continuing in terms of the transfer of risk from government to consumers as we get more on the system? So I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a sort of one-way transfer of risk, but what I think has been a sort of constant, but there's always two things in trying to get to the lowest cost system that you have to keep in balance. One is keeping down the cost of capital and the other is keeping down the system costs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a risk if you go too hard towards the cost of capital, you sort of inoculate those technologies from the impact they have on the system. Yeah, if, you, if, if you're, if you're them, paying people even if they're generating when the price is negative, you'll have exactly. a low cost of capital but a, but a high system cost. Exactly. And so we're constantly trying to fine-tune that and you can see that kind of theme through various of the changes in the CFD. Similarly, actually, in the in the CM, you could have characterised that as being the sort of high carbon market back in the when it first came out, but actually we've t- taken steps to open up to all technologies, so lowering the the size of um, the, the minimum participation, making sure it was easier for uh, demand side response to to go in there, but also actually allowing wind into the capacity market for the first time last last time and paying it um, its due value as a merchant project for the capacity it can it can provide. So there's a bit on both sides, right? I see in some markets that have capacity mechanisms, this debate that comes up, which is, okay, we're about to offer a 15-year contract to new capacity, um, some of which will be fossil fuel intensive, you know, gas peaking plants. In Poland, this year's auction is the first one where um, where coal can't get a capacity mechanism. And there's this debate, should we be giving long-term contracts to 
you know, positive carbon generation. Um, and, and some people say no, others will say, well, you know, let's, let's, you know, let, net, you know, net zero is, is the goal, not absolute zero. So let's not constrain ourselves too much to a smaller set of technologies. W- where do you sit on that? Do you see the capacity market playing a decarbonization role as well? Or would you do that outside the capacity mechanism? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a, um, a live debate with stakeholders with different views on it. I mean, we have already taken a step in that direction to take coal out of the capacity market by introducing emissions limits for the first time. Um, I mean, in, in, in practice, because we've already announced that we'll close coal uh, entirely from 2024, that should sort of reinforce that, um, which is a sort of slightly different position in uh, somewhere like Poland, for example. Um, and then, we, you know, we, we obviously need to look at market design over the next period of time uh, to look at that for other technologies. I mean, what I would say is there are there are scenarios you can paint where there is still gas peaking uh, as part of a net zero mix. Hmm. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I no, mean, that, that, that's quite. sort of the, the middle of January. That, that's some of the highest value hydrocarbons probably in the, in the system, I would, I would say. You know, up there with aviation would be my guess. But um, Yeah, that's right. And if you model that on what we've got on the grid at the moment, that's that, that will do it. Um, some of the job, some of it can be replaced definitely by batteries, interconnection, demand-side response in mm. intraday, and actually some of the modelling we've done, and and you've done as well, actually, John, around the role of hydrogen potentially in the yep. future system, could squeeze that out. Absolutely, but, but that isn't yet deployed, and so there are scenarios where you can get to lower levels of gross carbon, if you like, um, through uh, replacing it. But there are other ones where you can achieve a net zero system with uh, some gas in the mix. So um, as we go back to, there's going to be a theme, I suspect, of what we're talking about. Um, You know, we've got to make policy that's uh, able to adapt as the systems change and as the technologies evolve. Yeah, yeah. Okay. One other market we haven't talked about is carbon markets. Um, Why did you opt for a trading scheme rather than a tax? So we've got got history here um, in in using markets, uh, traded markets to... To solve these kind of social policy challenges, um, I think I'm right in saying we created the first trading scheme in the UK, um, and it gives you certainty on the level of emissions you're going to get and a degree of market confidence. Um, and of course, it gives you some optionality as well. So one of the things we've said is we will look at whether or not to link to other markets uh, in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, very good. Yes, I, and I, you know, I think in in general, it's it's one of those areas where there's sort of often more more um, more heat than fire in a sense. It's you know they're they're both alternative. At least as I see it from an economic perspective, they're both reasonable alternatives. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, you've opted for a hybrid, I suppose, with a with a with a with a with a flaw. So. Um, well, that's a good point. Yes, exactly. So there's some stabilizers uh, around that um, around that price that gives you again gives you some confidence in the price level as well as giving you that certainty on emissions. Mm. On the in- so that's the sort of market design bit. On the investment bit, um, let me start with nuclear. There's sort of you know new new investments. Um, so twenty uh, the, the headline for me at least was twenty twenty four for potential FID on new nuclear. How did you think about timing around twenty twenty four? You know, is it we want to at least in my mind, it would be sort of we want to see a bit more progress on on Hinkley C and and how that's going. Um, but yeah, what, what what are the key what are the key drivers of that decision? Of course, it's very helpful to to have that evidence from Hinkley Point as uh, people are looking at the next um, the next site. Um, 
but I mean, there are a number of other things that need to happen as well. So there's there's the financing side. Um, and as we've said, uh, we think the regulated asset base is a credible model, but we're exploring a range of other options, including taxpayer financing. So there's plenty of work to do there, including potential legislation, depending on the, the model we go down. Uh, but even aside from the financial side, there is for any nuclear plant quite properly uh, some regulatory steps to take forward to assure both um, you know, safety and, mm-hmm. and security, which the Office for Nuclear Regulation need to do in parallel. I mean, obviously, the EDF plants have a generic design assessment, but you also need a site-specific stage as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so arguably it couldn't be sooner in, 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 from, that, from that perspective. Um, do you think, and just one other one on the nuclear point, how do you think about competition in the process? You know, because, again, from my perspective, we went bilateral in the Hinkley C process reasonably early. Um, and, you know, it's, I suppose to some extent with these big projects, that happens naturally. Are we still thinking about competition? And I, I know you sort of leave open the prospect of it not being size well C. Um, are, we, are, we still, are we still envisaging competition in this process? Is that still possible in, in, in GB Power? Yes. I mean, clearly scale, the scale of nuclear plants uh, creates a challenge there in the sort of level of financing. Uh, but actually some of the design of the financing models potentially reduce the challenges that come with the scale of construction scale financing, so you know potential for both RAP and the government's equity to reduce that and make it more possible to introduce competition at the capital raise, for example. Um, but even uh, you know, with or without uh, those sort of models of competition, there's obviously an opportunity to mark to other markets in forming our value for money assessment. So understanding what the system costs would be to get back to that point with and without nuclear, um, based on what we know of the costs of other technologies at that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's almost you don't need to. You're not competing with someone else's nuclear. You're competing with offshore wind or some other some other comp- composition, I suppose. Um, good. The the other big big one that jumped out to me on the investment front was interconnectors. So we're talking about 18 gigawatts up from I don't know a bit under 10 at the moment, probably eight at the moment, something like that by 2030. Um, how do you the the big one for me on this is around security of supply. How do you get comfortable that with 18 gigawatts of interconnectors in a whatever it is, 50, 60 gigawatt peak system, that they're going to be providing power when we need it in the future? Yeah, um, and this is something we, we already have today, actually. Interconnectors play a really important role in uh, security of supply. Mm. And at one, at one level, it simply means you're part of a bigger system and therefore you would expect to be able to have a high level of security for the same. Well, yeah, yes, you get diversity, but you also get a high level of security for the same gigawatt margin yeah. because you're, you're 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 able to sort of balance it across the, the place. And I think the experience bears that out as well. There are, there are plenty of periods when, actually, I can think back particularly to 2016, 17, where we were, we were tight both sides of the channel, but um, you would see the interconnectors swing half hour to half hour between the French peak and the UK peak, and you could really see that they were able to enhance security supply on both sides of the channel. Yeah, yeah. But but inevitably, obviously, we, we have to look at, you know, the likelihood of, of the power flowing in the, in, in the direction that helps security supply. So when we look at things like our capacity requirements, uh, without getting too technical, we, you know, we derate uh, the nominal capacity of those interconnectors to take account for the likelihood that they'll flow in the direction that we need at peak. Yeah, okay. And so presumably the more the more you're relying on, say, France or something like that, perhaps the less you, you trust, you know, the, 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 the less diversified you are in a sense, maybe a, a bit less trust on interconnectors in that sense. 
Yeah, if you if you were to produce, you know, thirty indicators of the same country, you'd get less um, yeah. marginal value for the thirtieth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And that French peak, it's interesting, right? You'd think it would be an hour different because of working patterns. Uh, and I don't know if it's because the French are less industrious, but they, they tend to knock off a bit earlier from what I understand and the, and the demand goes up. So you've actually got sort of an hour and a half or something to to uh, to to swing the interconnector around when people start getting home. And, and Yeah, there's also yeah, differences in when the sun sets as well, things like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. That must, yeah, that's probably the diplomatic answer uh, on, on, on that one. Um, the um. Okay, so governance is the other governance is a big topic here. It's and this and the independent system operator. So the history, just for listeners who aren't aware, uh, we, we had a system in which a publicly listed company, National Grid, uh, owned the the transmission lines predominantly, but also was the system operator, had the control room, matched supply and demand in real time. We've now it's, it's still the same setup, but with a strong partition, separate boards. Uh, and the white paper is proposing going a step forward. What does the additional step solve, Dan, in in, in shifting the, the the system operator out of a publicly listed company? Yeah, so I mean, at this stage, we haven't uh, come you know, come to any final conclusions on this. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think is really important, given the point we're at in net zero, is to look at the system as a whole. I think I said that earlier, and partly look at the market frameworks, but also look at the institutions that oversee those. And it's important that we um, make sure we've got an institutional framework that works for net zero. And that means in some places, we need to create new functions that just don't exist at the moment. And, um, you know, cross-vector coordination would be one good example. Uh, But actually, you know, a degree of the long-term planning around the developments of uh, networks um, and markets uh, is is another one where some of those functions exist but need to grow. And what we need to do in that sense is to look at what what functions you need. And if you think you need to give a system operator those functions, um, does that raise you questions about um, where that sits and whether it would create conflicts of interest or you know, perceived generally or, or otherwise? Um, and that's where the question about independence comes in. Is, you know, yeah. If you're going to give it a sort of massive planning role across the whole system, can that sit where it is or does it need to sit somewhere else? And that's a question we're still looking at. Yeah. And it sounds, and again, I'm, I'm going to put words in your mouth here. You probably, you, you may not agree, but it sounds like you're, if you were to say, okay, when it's separate, when it's separated out, that seems to advocate more of a kind of state ownership or not, not profit kind of industry owned structure than a, than a private sector entity structure. Um, um, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that at this stage. I mean, okay. Clearly, clearly, we've got to answer the question. So. Yeah. If you do choose to take <laughs> it out, if you do choose to take that, where do you put it? Um, but uh, you know, we want to make sure that you know, if we come to answering that question, uh, we think about what the, the right thing for that organisation is, uh, both in terms of the conflicts I've talked about, but also for setting it up for success. And um, uh, yeah. we don't lean we don't lean um, ex ante in either direction, public or private, or some hybrid. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I, I think you you know the, obviously the, the U.S. approach, the Australian approach, is much more that kind of not-for-profit, you know, industry-owned but government-controlled entity, whereas the 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 the, the European one tends to be a bit more private private sector. I see pros and cons in 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 both in both yeah, directions. Yeah, it also speaks to what else your regulator does, what your co-governance yeah. looks yeah. like. So there's a there's a range of other parts. So yeah. 
it's interesting, you know, and there, you know, there's not a lot of money at stake, right? It doesn't cost a lot in the context of of the of the of the power market to run the system operator, but um, fundamental to how the whole thing functions and evolves. Yes. Um, the final governance bit I want to talk about is energy efficiency. So you're a, you're a Green Deal veteran, uh, as I understand it. I don't yep. think energy, and I don't think I'm alone. I don't think energy efficiency schemes have worked very well in the past, notwithstanding your point that sort of power consumption, you know, bills have stayed pretty constant. Some of that is reductions in power consumption. What's going to be different this time? How, how are we going to crack it? Yeah, so, so you're right. I mean, some of the things that we've done have absolutely worked, whether that's product efficiency or um, uh, the way that some industries have been able to become much more efficient in part because of price signals. Um mm-hmm. And and some of the you know I think you're talking really about energy efficiency in homes, yeah, and, and insulation and yeah those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah, and and you know green green deal is a very specific proposition. It was a financing mechanism for energy efficiency, which effectively allowed a household who was already keen to invest in their in, in a substantial energy efficiency upgrade to move forward the savings that they would get from that in order to pay for them. And and people didn't respond at the scale we would have hoped. Um, and you know we've we've learned from some of those things in. The more holistic way we've um, looked at energy efficiency. So we've kept some of the things that worked well. So eco has always driven uh, the energy efficiency obligations, always driven um, funding as, as, we, in, as distinct from financing for those measures. And that's um, made a lot, of, a lot of progress. But we're also um, targeting that better on people who need it most. So fuel poor and social housing in particular. Uh, and complementing it with legislation to drive take up at really natural points when it's it makes sense to sort of invest in the fabric of your building. So, renting a property, for example, uh, is a is a is a good one where there's a changeover in leases and obvious time to to upgrade. So I think I think we've we've taken some of the things that worked from uh, previous energy efficiency packages and tried to put them into a, a broader range of things. And of course, we've also had the um, green homes grants uh, running over the last few months, uh, which is another form of funding people to upgrade their homes. Mm. And is it going well, the Green Homes Grant, as far as you can see so far? Uh, I'm not very close to it, I'm afraid. Mm. I understand there's quite a lot of uh, interest in it, so that's, that, that's very positive. Yeah, great. Okay, good. The, another aspect that I think this government is, is big on is around technology, innovation, R&D, those types of things, and you see quite a lot of that in the, in the white paper. One particular area that's of relevance, I think, across, across the, the economy is... Um, carbon capture, usage and sequestration. Mm. Um, now, the UK seems to have taken a slightly different... So, so I think in many people's eyes, this is a, a substitute to investing in hydrogen and pushing that forward. And it seems like the European approach has been very much, uh, you know, Germany, France, Spain, Italy now focus on hydrogen, don't focus on CCUS. What do you think... What do you think makes the UK a more natural place to do CCUS, and 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 you know why does your view differ from the continent? Um, and I suppose wrapped up in that is you know do do you think CCUS could be like offshore wind, where the UK makes a massive contribution to global decarbonisation efforts um, through technological innovation? Well, let's take that first one first. So, yes, there's every reason why we, we can uh, do that. And um, as you say, offshore wind's been a, a really great thing for the UK, but also for the world in being able to drive massive cost declines. Um, 
and you know let's 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 hope CCUS can can do the same as it deploys at scale. Um, the UK obviously has some advantages in this space, not least the North, you know, the, the North Sea and um, our experience of uh, of that, and a number of natural stores for um, enormous amounts of uh, carbon dioxide. Um, just coming to your question about hydrogen, I don't, I don't think we've jumped one way or the other. I mean, clearly mm-hmm. you need to uh, clearly you need to invest in building the right. CCUS infrastructure for storing carbon wherever it's come from, whether that's from industry or from, indeed, the production of hydrogen, steam, yeah. methane, reformation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's quite right to commit to doing a post-combustion, shall we say, uh, CCUS in power um, this decade as well. Uh, but that, you know, that's not to say that we don't think. Uh, in fact, we say other, in other places in the in the white paper that uh, there is you know, a potential role for hydrogen in the economy. And one of those places it's got a potential that I can see, certainly in the modelling, is that you might take either create hydrogen through electrolysis or create it through steam methane reformation, which, again, is sort of a form of pre-combustion CCUS, and then and then use it in the power system. So I think I, I wouldn't set them up as as false opposites, actually. I think mm-hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a potential role for um, CCUS and hydrogen. Yeah. Is there a... Is there a challenge around like the sorts of long-term commitments of support you need for these types of technologies? So um, offshore wind, I suppose we just we just struck some long-term contracts on CFDs and said build a build an offshore wind farm at 150 plus pounds per megawatt hour and let's see what happens. Uh, with CCUS, you know, we've had it. We had the billion-pound competition in the past. That was probably scrapped four or five years ago. I think this, is, you know, Committee on Climate Change were, you know, fifteen years ago or twelve years ago at least, were foreshadowing CCUS playing a big role by twenty twenty. For someone who's thinking about kind of, you know, making a commitment and hoping to be backed by government on CCUS, how do you give them the confidence that government is there for the for the long haul, you know, do we need common law contracts like we did with the offshore CFDs, or yeah, what's the? How, how do you overcome that challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think the world's changed quite a lot since um, since the last CCUS competition uh, was cancelled. I mean, not least that we've committed to net zero, we've um, built out huge amounts of offshore wind in that time. I think the government's commitment is pretty clear on this, and. I hope the white paper helps give people confidence that we see CCUS as an important part of that story, you know, along with other technologies that we've already talked about. Um, but yes, of course, the policy design needs to make sure that we're striking that right balance between giving people the confidence and, and, and giving different people different confidence, right? So if you're a, a typically speaking, if you're um, a, a non-strategic uh, investor, if you're, you know, you're not really investing in energy because it's energy, but because of the stable return, that, that points to a different kind of capital structure to uh, those who are um, more interested in taking merchant risk for merchant reward, which you, you see in other parts of um, of the sector. Um, so we will need to bear all of those things in mind in making sure that we make sure we give people the, the confidence that brings down capital costs whilst also designing it in a way that um, allows CCUS to contribute positively to the system. Uh, and you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're hopeful we'll get out some um, more, yet more reading material for everyone uh, on uh, the CCUS business models in uh, in short order. Okay, excellent. Uh, new, presumably in the new year, though. 
Well, I don't know, actually. I, um, okay, well, well, not, not much left of this year, is there? So, uh, okay. I'm not, <laughs> given it's not my team, I probably ought to commit them. But uh, I think it, you know, everyone, everyone's keen no, to get moving. No rest for the wicked. I'm just trying to plan my Christmas reading list now, Dan. So, um, uh, good. I will, I, will wait, <laughs> I will wait and see. Just, just one more thing on the R&D technology thing. Should I... So, given the ban on electric vehicles, should I worry about buying a new internal combustion engine car now? Because uh, I'm kind of thinking, what will the what's going to happen to the resale value if I buy one now? It's new, and in nine years' time, you're not allowed to buy any more new ones. How, how should I think about that as a as a potential vehicle buyer? Isn't it interesting that the question's being asked that way around? Uh, yeah. You know, you know. So not very long ago, the question would be: yeah. Is now the right moment to buy an internal combustion engine car? Is the range big enough? Is it really <laughs> high enough performance? What's going to happen to the battery? Um, and you know, some of those questions still get asked, of course, but. We've done an awful lot to, well, particularly in um, uh, the office for low emission vehicles, done an awful lot to make these uh, much more normal. And the question is now how you go from a, a recognisably good product to one that is, um, you know, by 2030, not none of them are purely uh, petrol and diesel. Um, so I, I, perhaps I'll turn the question around and say, I, you know, oh, you should think about an ICE car now because I think there's some great models out there and it's a, and it's a great time to choose one. Okay. I, I, you'd have to have a look at whatever the secondary markets are now for petrol and diesel cars. I suspect they haven't changed hugely uh, as, as a result of um, the announcement of, uh, of 10 years hence. But why not look at a nice car? There's, um, sorry, not a nice car, a, a, an, a, EV. A, a, an EV. Yeah. Okay, good. There'll be music to my, my wife's ears. Um, <laughs> so uh, there, there you go. Um Great. So, just to conclude, there's I've got a few got a few um, underrated, overrated concepts where I, where I present you with a concept. The idea is very much, you know, anyone can say something's good or bad, but really, uh, what I want to hear is, you know, is it overrated or underrated relative to what a sort of reasonably educated person thinking about this thinks as a way of of taking a particular stance on a on a topic. So I'll, I'll, I'll fire them at you. You shouldn't feel compelled to to say anything more than overrated or underrated, but but, but by all means. Um, elaborate if you like. Um, so the first one is negative emissions technologies in achieving net zero. Uh, do you think they're over? Do you think negative emissions technologies? And I'm thinking, I mean, it's basically um, planting trees, becks, air captures are the things I think about. Do you think they're overrated or underrated? Probably depends who you talk to. Let's say underrated overall. Okay, very good. Um, the, yes, no. There's certainly no shortage of people who who uh, who who underrate them and overrate them out there. Um, the okay, second second um, concept: the role of markets in driving the energy transition to net zero. Do you think that is overrated or underrated? I think probably underrated. Okay, very good. Um, carbon prices as a way of driving decarbonisation. Uh, so, you know, there's all sorts of measures out there. Carbon prices is one of them. Do you, do you think people overrate them or underrate them as a, as a means of driving decarbonisation? Oh, it's a really tough one. So I, I think possibly underrated in the short run, uh, not mm -hmm. least making sure we iron out any anomalies that drive perverse behaviours, uh, but possibly overrated uh, in the long run by those who advocated as the only answer. Interesting. Okay. That's a... That's a yeah, I mean, there's a, and I think I probably lean this way is that you know there is a, there is a future in which you know you do the you do the fits and you do the, you know, government taking the risk to get things going and because the public's impatient about decarbonisation. But 
I, I, I still have a dream about some sort of elegant market structure in the future where we have mi- minimal instruments and we price the things that we want to price. But maybe that's too much to maybe that's too much to ask. I don't know what it looks like, by the way, Dan. So <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, very good. Um, the costs of deep decarbonization, you know, and by deep I mean you know getting to net zero. Do you think the mm. costs of deep decarbonization are overrated or underrated by a but you know by a sort of an expert who's thinking hard about the the industry? Um, well, we, we've always been pleasantly surprised to yeah. see technologies uh, come forward, and the costs of not decarbonizing are catastrophic. So I'm going to say they are um, the costs are overrated. That is a good point. And you'd have to say over the last couple of decades, the costs, even not taking account of the impact of you know, climate change, which, which could be catastrophic, you'd have to say we've consistently overrated the cost. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay, uh, the role, so next one, the role of smart devices and appliances. So, you know, not, not grid scale, that could be EVs, it could be a kettle, it could be a fridge, you know, any of those things the role of smart devices and appliance in delivering a flexible, stable future energy system? Uh, overrated or underrated? Probably underrated because mm-hmm. they're, they're not as widely deployed yet as they will be in the future, at which point I think we'll really realise their potential. Okay, interesting. Um, and uh, final concept, the relevance of policy uncertainty to the cost of capital. Uh, underrated or overrated? Well, we've, we've unpacked this extensively, haven't we, today? So I, I'm going to say it's, a, it's about right. Okay. Okay. Good. People get it about right. Okay. Good. Um, excellent. Well, I think that's a good time to, to stop. Um, Dan, thanks so much for coming in shortly after you've re- released the white paper at Bayes, uh, before your Christmas break, and, um, and talk to us about a wide range of issues in detail. Uh, so Dan Monzani, thanks so much for taking the time to speak. Thank you very much. That was John Federson, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive, talking to Dan Monzani, Director of Energy Security, Networks and Markets at Bayes. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.